My name is Amy Collins, and if you want to learn how to define your own idea of success and start to live your best life, you should be listening to the More Than Corporate podcast with my good friend, Amber Furman. Welcome to the More Than Corporate podcast, where we discuss finding fulfillment, defining success, and living your best life. There's no roadmap to success, no one-size-fits-all answer to fulfillment. I believe it requires us all to be vulnerable and authentic about what we want to accomplish and have the courage to step out of our comfort zone to chase our dreams. Keep listening to hear stories from inspiring people who make it their mission to live their best life every day. Welcome back to the show, everyone. I am super excited for today's interview. Today, I have an interview with Amy Collins. She's the founder of Bestseller Builders and president of New Shelves Books. Collins is a trusted expert, speaker, and recommended sales consultant for some of the largest book and library retailers and wholesalers in the publishing industry. She is a USA Today and Wall Street Journal bestselling author, and in the last 20 years, Amy and her team have sold over 40 million books into the bookstore, library, and chain store market for small and mid-sized publishers. She is a columnist for and a board member of several publishing organizations and a trusted teacher in the world of independent publishers. Amy and I had a really cool conversation. We got into writing books. We got into publishing books, self-publishing options, some of the other options that may exist for somebody who is in the process of writing a book, when you should consider your publishing option and how that may impact how you write your book and who you write it for, and so many other things, including a bunch of information about Amy's background and her history and music and just a really cool conversation. So I'm really excited for you to hear from Amy. Before we jump into that conversation, I wanted to take a minute to talk to you about the spots that I've opened up for my individual coaching sessions. If you are somebody who feels like you're stuck in your current position, you feel like there's so much more fulfillment that you could be getting from life and you can't figure out how to get to that point where you feel like you're actually accomplishing your goals, then the coaching program may be for you. I work one-on-one with my clients to crush limiting beliefs, to lift any perceptions that they may have about what you can accomplish, and to really dig deep into some of the imprint and beliefs that you may be holding on to that are self-sabotaging your progress without you even knowing it. So if you are interested in connecting to discuss whether or not it's a good fit for us to work together on a one-on-one coaching capacity, please reach out to me. I'll post my Calendly link in the show notes and I would love to connect with you just to chat, see how I may be able to assist you in one way or another. I look forward to speaking with you and with Without further ado, let's get into my conversation with Amy. Amy, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really, really appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Amber. I'm a big fan. I'm really looking forward to this. I'm so excited to have you. So we just went through your bio, but just to remind everybody, you have this amazing company. You're the president of New Shelf's Books. Um, You have your amyadvice.com that we're going to get into that I think is just fantastic. But before we get into all of that stuff, let's just figure out a little bit about who you are. Where are you from? Originally, um, my entire family is sitting in Burlington, Vermont at the moment. But I left home at a very young age to be a professional singer. 
And I, I, I live in New York at the moment. Uh, I never made it as a singer, although I tried really hard. And uh, home right now is upstate New York, but the rest of my family's all up in Burlington, Vermont. Wow. What type of music did you focus on for singing? I'm fascinated by that. I studied classical music and I actually did make a living for a short period of time as a professional singer singing uh, classical and, and, and I'm a classically trained singer. That's amazing. I love the singer songwriter performance world. And we'll get into this a little bit more, I'm sure. But this podcast talks so much about authenticity and vulnerability. And there are few things on the planet that require more authenticity and vulnerability than putting yourself in front of somebody in a singer songwriter capacity or a singer capacity and just performing for somebody and hoping that they like it. I tell people it's the best hobby in the world. I write all these songs, usually about how somebody's either left me or done me wrong, but I'll write the songs. I get up on stage. I get to sing stuff I wrote. People clap for me every four and a half minutes, and at the end of the night, I get a check. It is the best hobby ever. Yes, I love it. So are you still involved in um, singing, maybe not in a professionally no, yeah, on the weekends. Yes. I, I still sing on the weekends. I still, uh, you know, I'll grab my guitar and head out and do a night or, um, you know, I, I love it. But no, my, my day job in the publishing world keeps me pretty busy. So maybe once or twice a month, I'll go out with friends and we'll play some music. So the, the age-old question that I have to ask everybody who can sing well better than I can is karaoke, yes or no? No. <laughs> That's the answer I yeah. normally now, get. Now, I have no judgment on karaoke for other people, but karaoke is not my favorite. I would much rather, and I do, sit in my living room with a bunch of friends and just jam for a few hours. Karaoke is pretty painful for me. Yeah, that's the answer that I normally get from people. They're like, I listen to people sing all day long. I don't need to go do that again. Um, so let's go back a little bit to maybe high school age when you're getting ready to figure out what you're going to do when you go into the world. Did you have an idea of what you thought your life was going to look like and what plans you had for your adult self? I, I had a rough idea. I'm lucky enough that I came from a very creative and entrepreneurial family. My mother's side of the family, they were very well read. My grandmother was a librarian. My grandfather, you know, ran a newspaper and he was a college professor and eventually became a judge. They were very into books and learning and, and the written word. And they were very musical. And my dad's side of the family, they owned restaurants and businesses and they started all of these so I had two very different ideas of what success and what my life could look like. So I, I was pretty fortunate, but I knew in high school, I knew that I was going to be a musician. I couldn't have been more wrong. Um, but I was positive that I could make a living as a musician. And the fact is I couldn't. I had some of the talent, I had some of the drive, but I didn't have enough of whatever that it is that would make me... Uh, be able to make a living at it. And so I was very, very happy to get a job in a bookstore after a few years. And, and it kind of felt comfortable because of all my years on my mother's side of the family. That's amazing. So you got a job in a bookstore and did you at that point in time have an interest in the publishing world and the writing world, or was it more of a sales, a, a sales path for you? It, 
It was a decision born of desperation. When you're a musician, and at least as I as a musician, I was not making a lot of money. And I went back to college and got a degree in teaching. I decided that I wanted to teach because I loved English and I loved history and I loved music that I would teach English and music. I mainly did it because I wanted summers off, not because I had a particular passion for teaching. I just thought it was a nice, safe thing to, to, back, to do as a background. Small problem. I got a job immediately. I, I was flown out to Arizona. I lived in Phoenix, Arizona, and I got a job as a teacher at a boarding school out there. And I discovered my very first month of teaching that I don't like children at all. I am not good with kids. So here I am, a teacher at a boarding school who does not like children. I literally, I had, there was the potential of me being one of those evil headmistresses in every bad Matilda movie you've ever seen. But thank goodness, I made it through the first year. I turned around and said, thank you very much. I'm done. And went on to get a job in a bookstore just to tide me over until I figured out what I really wanted to do. It was a, it was a, just a part-time quick thing to do until I figured out my next step. I certainly did not know that I'd end up being their book buyer for five years and then eventually get a job with a division of a publishing house that's now with Random House. That's amazing. And I am a huge Harry Potter fan. And so I'm just like picturing the short, plump, I can't even think of her name right now that tortures Harry Potter with like the uh, ruler. Yes. Um, Imelda... Um, Dumbright yes. or yes, yeah, yes. what Dumbridge or whatever, yeah, no, that's what I'm picturing right now. I sh I share your I share your opinion. I um thought that I could teach at a at a college level, and I think that I would have enjoyed teaching at a college level, but it takes so much patience to teach. So even outside of the kids aren't my forte mentality, it just I don't, it takes so much to teach, so much patience that I don't think I have. It has to be a passion. And yeah, teaching sixth graders was not my passion. <laughs> Anything around um, sixth graders is not my passion. I have a friend who is starting an entrepreneurial for kids, which I love, but he's like, do you want to be a mentor? And I'm like, do you know me at all? Anything about me? Have so you met me? <laughs> yeah. My own sister and brother won't let me babysit. No, I don't want to work with your children. Yes. All right. So you're in this book, um, th this bookstore, and you're a buyer for them, which for anybody who doesn't know, can you kind of talk about what it's like and how a bookstore gets the things that are on their shelf? I think it quickly became apparent to the management of the bookstore chain where I was working, because at that point they had 10, 12 stores. Eventually they even grew out to be a much larger chain. But it was quickly apparent to them that I shouldn't be working with the public. So they put me in the office and my job was to decide what books to stick on the shelf and what books not to. I started out as an assistant where I'd be restocking books that were selling on a regular basis. Now this was the 90s. So who moved my cheese and um, Bridges of Madison County. And you know, these were the big books back then. Oprah was huge with her book club. It was just getting started. And when we were running short on books, my job was to make sure that books were always in stock. But a book buyer's job is to decide which books that have not been published yet, but that are coming down the pike are going to end up on the shelves and which ones aren't. And I did that for many years and I loved it. So one of the things that I always say to people is that in whatever opinion or whatever area you're, you're in, whether it's business or 
professional or whatever, people are going to buy you, not your product or service. They're going to connect with you. And I was interviewing an author who said a similar thing about books. Like once you publish a book that somebody connects with, they will read all of your books as long as they're of somewhat similar value. When you're deciding what books make it on a bookshelf, do you have a similar relationship to authors? Do you have certain authors that you are drawn to because you know their quality is higher? Do you build those relationships or are you looking at each book in its own individual capacity? One of the hardest things to learn and what separates the good buyers that I work with from the buyers that I'm less than fond of is that a really good buyer doesn't let their own personal opinion color what books they're gonna stock. Yes, I myself would fill a bookstore with nothing but Roseman Pilcher and Hillary Mantle novels. I mean, all, you know, go ahead, throw an English accent on it and I will stick it on the shelf. That is my personal passion. But the fact is, is that you have to pay attention to what the community around that store, what they want. And so if you've got a bookstore, in Duckbill, Ohio, and you have another bookstore in the same chain in Buffalo, New York, and you have a third one down in Miami, Florida. Those are three extremely different communities, and you have to pay attention to what they want. And they will tell you, they vote with their dollars. So what they're buying, if the Miami store is buying mainly political and memoir and it's okay then then i'm not going to throw a bunch of romance novels in there and if duckbill ohio i don't think there is a duckbill ohio i've totally made that name up guys don't don't google me um <clears throat> then so you have so yes there is a connection and you know who the good authors are and you know who the good publishers are and there are publishers who have little imprints and an imprint is a subset of a publisher and you know that anything they do is high quality, I love that. But you have to stay open-minded because there's always new things coming out. And so if you're buying a nonfiction line of books on, you know, for beginners, well then yes, you can trust that something, something for dummies, you can trust it because you know the brand name. But you're not doing anyone any service if you only buy the dummies books. It was my job as a buyer to keep an open mind and to try new things but those new books really had to prove themselves quickly to me. It's not just about the love of books. The book has to earn their way into my heart and then it has to earn its way to stay there. There's no, uh, there's no, it's, it's not a, an emotional thing. I'm, as much as I'd love to tell people it is, it's a business decision. Yeah, and I think that that's so important for everything that we're doing, whether you're an entrepreneur that's out there building a business or whether you are a person who is trying to sell yourself to a business for employment, that we need to be able to communicate with people and give people what they want, not what we want. And that's such a hard lesson for us all to wrap around and put aside our ego to be able to give people what they want so that everybody can get a win-win in the end. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that this was back in the 90s. And the first thing that comes to my mind is the level of um, room for error that you had, um, which I think would be different than now because this was pre the Amazon takeover. This was pre huge internet sales, if I'm accurate. And so 
you had to decide what books you were going to sell because right now, if you go into a bookstore, you can say, oh, I don't have it in stock, but give me till tomorrow. I can have it shipped to you. In the 90s, we didn't have that possibility. Can you talk about a little bit about how that's changed for bookstores since the increase of internet sales? It has actually changed more in their favor in some ways, and it's worked against them in others. Now, as many of you probably know, the book industry is one of the few industries that purchases books on a returnable basis. If a bookstore or Amazon or anyone who has customers buys a book to turn around and sell it to their customer, if that book does not sell within a certain period of time, they're allowed to return the book for a free, full refund. So the risk that you're talking about um, in terms of for bookstores to, to, to make the right decision has not changed in that way. You can still return books if you don't make the right decision. But I will tell you where the internet and where the new business world has really cramped bookstores. Rents are much higher. Employment costs are higher. Everything has gone up. But the price of books has not gone up anywhere near as high as rent has or insurance costs or employee costs. I mean, books that were 12 or $13 15 years ago are now 14 or $15. It's, they've gone up a dollar or two, it's a couple of high, but books do not bring in a lot of money. And so when you have to keep your costs low, when you have to pay your rent or your mortgage every month on the store, when you have to keep the lights on, Every square inch of that bookstore shelf has to make you money, and it has to make you money faster than it used to. In the 90s, I could take a chance on a new author. I could, you know, if an author came in with a book, I could give it a couple months on my shelf. Why not? I've got time. I don't have that time now. Bookstores have incredibly tight margins. They, yes, they buy books returnable. And yes, they get a 40% discount off of most of the books they buy. But that 40% off of a $13 or a $14 book is not enough to keep the lights on if that book is not selling fast and hard. And so you don't have six, eight months anymore to prove yourself. You have six or eight weeks at the most. Yeah, and I think what also comes to my mind is our, as a society, our willingness to wait. So if we don't see what we want in a bookstore, um, Amazon can have it to us. Well, now Amazon can have it to us in like four hours if we really want it, but it can have it to us overnight. And so I think that that also plays into it too, is we as a society aren't willing to wait for something anymore. So we need it now. And if you don't have the right book in your store, it could impact your ability to, to keep going. And one of the things that completely flabbergasted me, because if you want to say, Amy, what is the one thing that marks your entire career? I would say that the number of times I've been wrong is stunning. Because <laughs> I've been wrong so often. And here's one of the things I used to believe. I used to believe that the, and I'm only speaking about the American public, but that the American public would never be comfortable browsing for books online. I really believed that they would always need to go to a bookstore or a library or have someone recommend them the book, that, they, that stumbling across new books online was never going to work. I truly believed that. I was wrong, horribly, painfully wrong. Now, not me, because I'm old, but most people younger than I and all the way down, you know, people under 50, they have learned how to browse online. I've learned how to browse online. I'm always finding new authors and new books online. 
I don't have to go to a bookstore or a library. All I need to know is that if I like Hillary Mantle, well, then obviously I'm going to like Elizabeth Chadwick because Amazon or barnesandnoble.com tells me so. And I can download, and I'm an ebook girl. I love ebooks. So I can download a book in seconds and be reading. I am never without a book thanks to my iPhone. Yeah, I have recently embraced um, the ebook mentality as well. Um, I am a reader. I have to visually be able to highlight and things like that. So I always thought I need to carry around my books. And then like I was carrying around three at a time and I'm like, this really is not effective. And so the ebooks have changed the game for that. With that being said, I would love your opinion as somebody in the industry before we move on to the publishing world of things as what you see for the future of bookstores. Like I see people talk about, or I hear people talk about the idea that boutique bookstores that can offer a reading experience might be coming back. Where do you see brick and mortar book, bookstores and their future in this reading sales experience? Independent bookstores are coming back. Seven years ago, there were 1,600 independent bookstores in the United States. There's now over 2,400. That, I mean, we have over 800 more bookstores today than we did seven years ago. Those numbers are solid. They're listed right by the American Booksellers Association. You can take, look them up. You can Google that, guys. I promise. That's a real number. I make up numbers sometimes just to be funny, but that's a real number. These numbers are growing. But a lot of these bookstores are also wine bars. They're also musical venues. They're tea shops. They're, you know, they sell uh, board games. These bookstores aren't usually just bookstores anymore. They are community centers. There's one in DC that I love that, um, that invites people to come in and sit down and play board games, but it's also a bookstore. And then there's, there's uh, this Asheville. Oh, I, in Asheville, North Carolina, I went recently to one that was a wine bar in a bookstore and it was lovely. And so I think bookstores have, a, I mean, you don't need my wisdom on this. You can see that they're coming back. You can see that they're growing. Libraries are coming back. Place, people want to get together and have an experience and they can't do that online. But also keep in mind, people are getting very tired. We're getting busier and busier. We're working longer hours. We have less free time. I don't know how long that's going to last, but if I, and keep in mind, if I'm, if I, I've said this before, if I think something, I'm probably wrong, but here's my <laughs> guess. I would guess we are hitting a maximum point in our ability and interest in not having any leisure time as Americans. I think that we're, I think we're at a crisis point. We are exhausted, we are overstretched, we are overscheduled, and when we do sit down for 11 minutes, we feel guilty. And I think there's gonna be a backlash to that. It's already started, that's already started. Um, Ariana Huffington's been leading that charge for a few years now, but I think that when that actually boomerangs around, bookstores and libraries are going to have even more of a resurgence than they're having now. Yeah, I think I 100% agree with you. And the willingness of the public to open up about mental health issues, the willingness of corporations to start thinking about perks that um, will benefit the long-term success of employees, I think all of that is going to tie into exactly what you just said. I think as a society as a whole, we're hitting that crash point. And I think that's probably an amazing way to describe it. So um, that's, that's an interesting answer and I like it. So you sell for five years, and then at some point in time, you obviously end up in the publishing world. How did that transition happen? 
I, my job was to sit at a desk and sales reps from the large publishing houses would come in and every day I'd have three or four meetings with three or four different people. And their job was to flip through catalogs and tell me what the best books were and what their, 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 you know, big hits were coming up so that I could place orders. And I would order six copies of that and 10 copies of that. And I did this for years. Well, one of my sales reps was, get, was getting a job. She was hopping over to another division and she was going to HarperCollins. And she said, you know, Amy, you'd be kind of good at this. And she said, let me tell you how much I make. <laughs> and she told me, and so she would drive up to my parking lot. And I will never forget in a dark green SUV, it was a Honda CRV SUV. Now, again, this was the mid nineties. They were nice and boxy. And she had a cell phone and she had an expense account and she had, and I was making, I think $22,000 a year. And I was driving a seven-year-old K car and I, I was, and I was living in a studio apartment and I was tired and I said, yes, I want to try that again. I might as well be honest with you. Some of my decisions were made for not the most spiritual of reasons, but I, the rest of my life balances that out. But I decided to try it and I loved it. I love to travel. I love to talk about books. I love to read. And for the next 14 years, I got paid to read, talk, and travel. And I adored it. And I flew up the, uh, the, the ranks of corporate America and I eventually became a director of sales because I, what I really love doing is finding out what stores like Michael's Arts and Crafts or Home Depot, what is it they needed? And then I would go find books for them. And it was a blast and I loved it. And I still do it to this day. I just don't do it for somebody else. I do it for my own authors. As far as getting into the like publishing world, this is something that I know I have a ton of listeners that are figuring out what the best way to break into the writing and author world. And, th and they're not always people who plan on being career authors. They're entrepreneurs or business owners that want to get their knowledge out into the world. So when somebody's writing a book and they're thinking about how they're going to get that out to the world, when is the best time for them to start thinking about their publishing options? Well, the best time is before they write the first word. And the second best time is wherever they are right now. So the best time to think about your publishing options is before you start writing the book. And let me explain what I mean by that. You will write a very different book if you're writing for the book trade. Now, what we call the book trade in our industry is the general public. If you've written a leadership book that takes on everyone's, the, the generally accepted foibles of the human race, the fact that we're not always honest, the fact that we all have low self-esteem, the fact we all feel like imposters, the fact, I mean, you, you, let's say you were going to write a, a leadership book for people that actually poked at some generally accepted character defects. That is one way to write your book. And I can think of a number of large publishers who might be very interested in publishing that book for you. If you're writing a book for recovering addicts and alcoholics who have compulsive lying issues so that they can get a job in the, the if they can get a career in the recovery community, well, I gotta tell you, I don't see Random House signing up. That's a book that you could probably still sell eight, 10,000 copies of, but you should be publishing that yourself. Okay. And so the more niche you are and the less general trade you are may help you decide which publishing entity you want to go with. Do you want to do it yourself 
or do you want to get a publisher? But let me tell you, in my opinion, and you know how I said before, if I think something, I'm probably wrong. In this <laughs> case, I'm right. You guys have, if you don't take anything else away from what I say, please listen to this. Do not pay a publisher to publish your book. Please, please, please. There's no exceptions. There's, uh, that, is, that is a hard and fast rule. You can pay people to help you publish your own book and where you own the ISBN and you own the publishing rights and, and, you, and you should hire editors and proofreaders and cover designers. Of course you should do that. Don't do it yourself. You're no good at it. <laughs> but, but please do not pay someone to publish your book because what in essence you're doing is you're giving them the money that you could give a cover designer and, and an editor, and, but they're also, they're taking your distribution rights. They're taking, there's just no point. If you're an entrepreneur, publish the book yourself and hire someone to help you do it properly. If you are an entrepreneur who has an enormous following and what you want is the gravitas and the nod that comes from being professionally published by HarperCollins Business or by Wiley, well then go do that. Get an agent, get published. That was probably way too long of an answer, Amber. You probably no. didn't want all that. But. No, I love it. I love it so much. So for the person, and, and I'm glad that you said that because I had fallen in the camp of why should I worry about who's going to publish my book until I have a book to publish? Like don't put the egg before, or the horse before the cart, right? But um, understanding that you will change the way that you kind of show up in that book based upon who you're marketing it to makes complete sense to me. I, I am begging you, and it's not just me. Other agents and editors will tell you this. Please write your book at someone. Have a person in mind when you're writing your book. And if certain chapters or lines or words or sentences do not make sense for the person you're writing at, take it out. This is not your last book, guys. It's your first book or your second, or your third. It's not your last book. Write your book at someone and you have a much better chance of success and of selling it than you ever do if you try and write it for everybody. I, I love that you said that because that's similar advice that's given to anybody who's putting out any type of content. So my question is when you're um, working with somebody who's in that beginning stage and they're starting to craft their book, do you advise them to create like an actual avatar of who their, list, who their reader is? We start by creating six. We create six people. I call it my Frankenstein moment. We create six human beings from scratch. And then I do the market research and I find out which of those six human beings buys books. Because I got to tell you guys, if you've written a book, let me give you an example. I had an author whom I adored who was writing a book about keeping your kids safe from predators on the internet. I think we can all agree that is a very valid goal. And we all want books on that. But here's the thing. When you create your list of people and then you go do the research, I found out that none of the people who need that book were buying books on it. They were reading blogs about it. They were watching videos on YouTube. They were, they were going to talks about it at their local PTA, but books on that topic were not selling. White papers were, and if you, you know, people were reading blogs about it, as I said, so if you're going to write a book, make sure you have a market first. Not every thought you have and not every idea should be a book. Some of them should be a video. Some of them should be a podcast. Some of them should just be a magazine article. 
But if you've got a great idea that should be a book, you'll know that because you've created a human being you're writing at and you've already done your research to find out if that person actually buys books on your topic. I love it. So I want to get into some, we've talked about so much tactical advice and, and it's amazing. Um, and I would Hard imagine- believe I didn't want to be a teacher. I know, right? Well, I'm, I'm with you. Um, so I can imagine that this is a little glimpse into what your Amy advice doc, or your Amy advice sessions are like. Can you talk about where that yes. idea came from and what you do with those and where people can find them? Um, we call it Free Advice Friday is my podcast. Free Advice Friday, you can find it on Apple, you can find it on Spotify, you can find it. But the website, amysadvice.com, and, and you can ask me questions live. If you go to amysadvice.com, you can sign up to join me live every Friday from 10 a.m. Eastern to 11. And I answer questions all the whole hour that come at me about the publishing industry. If you have questions because you don't understand how copyright works or you don't know what the Library of Congress does or why can't you do this, I, it got to the point, I received between four and 500 emails a day from people asking for my help, asking for advice in the publishing industry, because I'm lucky enough that I'm out there a lot in different magazines and the like, people ask me for help. And I, it was breaking my heart. I couldn't answer them all. So what I do is I give an hour every Friday where I answer any question that comes at me. So amysadvice.com, you can email me at questions at amysadvice.com. You can sign up for Free Advice Friday at Amy's, at, with an S, A-M-Y-S, no apostrophe, amysadvice.com. But Free Advice Friday is the name of the session. I, I simulcast live on Facebook. It, it goes on my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash amycollins. And all of my old versions are there. And it's totally free. It's the way, it's the only way that I could give back to the community without exhausting myself by trying to answer 400 emails a day. I love it. And, you know, I'm a true believer that everybody has a story that needs to be told. And similar to what you said, maybe it's not all told in a book, maybe it's told in a podcast or it's told in another way. But we for too long have lived in a society where we believe that there's only a certain amount of people that should be telling our story. And this is what I love about the podcasting world. And so I really think that everybody could benefit from signing up for something like what you're offering for the free advice um, Friday, because you get to see what other people are struggling with by the questions that they're asking. And you get to realize that you're not alone in getting into this space. And I love everything about it. There are so many wonderful resources out there. And I get nothing for recommending these guys, but you know, Jane Friedman, janefriedman.com, uh, IBPA, the uh, Independent Publishers Association. I, you know, my website, my blog is helpful at newshelves.com, but, but there's so many great people out there trying to be helpful to authors. There's, there's, in this day and age, we're in a golden age of online information. There is no reason to not do this right if you do your homework. Yeah. And I think um, in, in the world that we're in right now where you have more access to get your message out, but at the same time, what you do is permanent and it's not going to, you know, in, in the past you could write a book or you could do um, a, a web article or not web newspaper article. And if it 
crashed and burned, it would kind of disappear. And we are in a um, society right now where what you do follows you around for the rest of your life. So it is important that you do it right the first time because you, you, the idea that you can't remake a first impression was so important in like the 60s and 70s and 80s, but it is so much more important now because that YouTube channel that you put out, um, if you don't do it right the first time, and, I, and I'm not talking about the increase that comes with time. I'm talking about like real bad mistakes that people make because they try to do too much themselves. Um, you can't fix Or those. they try and rush to publication. Yes. They're in such a hurry to get a book out. Getting a book out properly takes almost a year. Yeah. Please, for the love of heaven, stop rushing. To, you, you want to publish a book. You don't want to print a book-shaped object. Do it right, guys. So this may be an answer to this question, but I'm interested to know if there was one thing that you thought people knew about, that you wished people knew about the publishing industry, what, what would that be? That books are not, if I, if I could give one bit of, of wisdom that people truly would believe, because no one believes me when I tell them this, that writing a book is just the first step. It is not, it is not the, it, you're not done when you write the book. You're not done when you publish the book. You are not done until you're writing your next book and you're selling the, the previous one. That writing a book and getting into publishing and becoming a successful author is a full-time hard job that never ends. You do not get to write a book become a bestseller, and then go sit at a villa somewhere in Italy. It never works that way. And people who say, but what about Fifty Shades of Grey? Or what about The Secret? Or what about The Shack? Those were, they did not go viral. They worked their butts off. They spent tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars and hundreds of thousands of hours. And they had teams in place to become successful. And then they wrote their next book. If to answer your question, if, if I could impart one bit of wisdom, is that the slowest and worst way to make a living is to be an author. It is the worst way ever to be an author. And that is not why you do it. Any more than that's why you and I shouldn't be teachers. It's, it has to be a passion. And for those of you who are nonfiction authors and who are entrepreneurs and who are business people, the book should only be one part of your educational plan. You should be podcasting, you should be blogging, you should be doing live sessions, you should be doing video sessions, you should have a YouTube channel, you should be putting information out. I don't care, TikTok videos, I don't care what you do, but books should only be one small part of it. So um, I'm gonna hold on to this nugget um, for the next session. We're gonna talk about you for a little bit more, but I think that advice just applies so well across the board. Like if you're doing anything with the idea of making money as your top priority, you're going to fail and it's gonna suck. Um, you have to have a passion for whatever you're doing and otherwise you burn out so quickly. And so we'll talk about that when we get to the success side of this, but that just wraps it up in a bow. So thanks for that. Well, because um, it's an expensive proposition. People yeah. spend five, six, seven, ten, twenty thousand $20,000 to publish a book and they want their money back. No, no, I'm sorry. My dad spent eight or $10,000 a year to become a better golfer. He wasn't expecting his money back. You know, I, I mean, people who, who want to become better watercolorists and take classes and I don't know very many people who decide to paint flowers who think they're going to get to make a living at it. 
why do writers think that they all get to make a living at it when no other creative enterprise does? Well, and I think the short answer to that is that we have seen the rise of people talking about the money that they're making from their books. And um, we, in everything that we do in life, we see the end game. We don't see the hard work that goes into it. And so everybody is looking at this thing. Oh, well, this person did it. It's like your singer songwriter. That's a one hit wonder. That's been busting his ass for 25 years in bars in Nashville or wherever he's at that finally got a song out. And everybody says, Oh, well that happened quick for him. You know, that's kind of where we're at right now. And we're in a world where everybody's being told, if you want to be a successful entrepreneur, you have to have a book. And so they're like, well, this is where I'm going to make my money. Well, and there's a lot of predators out there who are preying upon authors and telling them that they can become bestsellers or that they can, you know, have all their dreams come true if they write a book in a weekend and then sell a truckload of books. No, that's not how it works. I'm sorry. I, I would be so rich right now if I just, if I just swallowed it and just said, you know what, I'm going to be one of those guys because there's so many great people out there right now making a huge living telling authors that everyone can be a bestseller. We, we can't. I, I actually spend most of my time making authors cry. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. So you have um, your bestseller builders um, that you're the founder of, and then you also have the president um, of New Shelves Books. Talk to me about kind of where those came from and what you do with those. New Shelves Books, I started a book sales and distribution company 14 years ago yesterday. Yesterday was my 14th anniversary. And it was my job then and now was to help small presses and self-published authors and entrepreneurs and people who, who wanted to get their book into Barnes and Noble. And at the time it was Borders. But now it's you know people who want to get into airport stores or bookstores or libraries. And I would do that for them. But then the print-on-demand world came around, and there was really no point in me. I had a big warehouse out in New Hampshire. I had eight guys and you know trucks that. But those with print-on-demand that became unnecessary. So paying attention to what's going on in our industry, I suggested, and I still suggest that for most authors, print-on-demand makes a great deal of sense to get started. So everyone now, for the most part, can go print on demand, unless you're doing children's books or cookbooks or something that's very high level for color, then things get a little dicey. But most books, especially those of you who are entrepreneurs and business people who are writing nonfiction or novelists, if you're going to get published by a small house or publish your own book, most of these books are now coming out print on demand. Print on demand being a business model that uses digital printing, plus just-in-time shipping to get books to bookstores and Amazon and to you know my Aunt Gertrude when she wants to order a copy of your book. And so New Shelves became a sales and marketing consultancy verse for a long time. And what we do is we taught people, and we still do, we teach people how to do it themselves. I teach a class right now. It's an online video self-paced class where you, and I teach it with Daniel Hall through the Real Fast Library Marketing Company, where if you want to learn how to sell to libraries and you want the, the email addresses of you know, 10,000 librarians and stuff, sign up for my class. You get lifetime access to it. And that's what we do now. And that is what we focus on. 
We do not promise people that we're going to get them into Walmart. I can't get you into Walmart. You don't deserve to be in Walmart yet. I'm so sorry. <laughs> but I will help you take all the steps necessary so that you can earn your way into Walmart eventually. You know, I love that you just said that. I, I launched a podcast episode that actually aired today. So it's interesting that you say that about letting go of the things that we think that we're entitled to. And um, that makes so much sense to me. Because we all are like, okay, just, just get me there. And every one of us, every person on the planet needs a you in our ear to tell us you don't deserve that yet. Like you got to work yet. your ass off to get there. Yet. It is yet. coming. Exactly. Yet. And everybody that is there has gone through the same process that you've gone through to get to that point. They just did it in a time where we weren't talking about it. And so I'm interested actually to see what the next... 20 years is going to look like, what it's going to look like in 20 years when we start seeing the process. Because so many people are talking about in every industry, the process that it took them to get to that point. And I think mm -hmm. that's a, a behind the curtain scenes that we haven't had um, up to this point. People bemoan. I hear so many authors and publishers complain that the, the entertainment choices and the educational choices now are so crowded. There's, they say there's never been more competition than there is now. And I would argue that there's never been more opportunity than there is now. Back in 1907, if you had a great idea, how were you going to get it out to the public? What were you going to do? Get on your horse and ride from town to town? And I mean, you, you've never had the opportunities that you have now. Please don't pay attention to the competition. Pay attention to the opportunities. Yeah, 100%. I agree with you. I mean, anybody can can start a podcast. Anybody can start a YouTube channel. Like as long as you have something to say and you're doing this with the right intention behind it, you'll stick around long enough to be able to make an impact in the world. And when you start to make that impact, you start to make that money, but the impact comes first. People aren't paying you before they start to see the impact that you're making in the lives exactly. of the people around you. Yep. So 100%, I like it. So where can people find you if they want to reach out to you for the purposes of your course? I know you mentioned that for um, this idea of getting from idea to publishing. Anyone who's interested in finding out the things we do can go to newshelves.com. N-E-W-S-H-E-L-V as in Victor, E-S.com. New, not old, shelves, what you put books on, dot com. Uh, we are, we've recently done a, a whole new overhaul of the website. I think by the time this podcast airs, you're going to see the new website. It'll be up by them. And, um, and what we do and how we do it is there as well as our blog, uh, a link to our YouTube channel. All I do not sell my knowledge. I do not sell my information. I give it away freely. I, you can have any bit of knowledge I have. You want to know who the librarian is or who the head buyer is at, at Walmart, sure, I'll give you her name. You want to know the best way to get a PCIP code? I will hand you their email address. I do not sell that stuff. It is all on my site for free. But if you want me to do it for you, we would love to talk to you about that. I like it. And that just reminds me so much of people... Um, who talk about giving so much value and you know the difference between a, a society where we feel like we have to hold on to everything that we know because we want to be able to make money from it and then somebody like yourself and so many other amazing entrepreneurs that I know that give out so much for free here's all the information that I know if you want to go sort through it and figure out how to do it on your own 
then you go ahead and do that. If your time is valuable to you and you would like me to help you do that, then let's talk. And I love that mentality so much. Well, because not everyone has the budget to do this, but they do have the time, you know? And I've said for years, time, money, talent, pick any two. As long as you've got two of them, you're fine, but you need at least two. I love it. So moving into kind of the contact um, segment of this podcast, something that I ask every single one of my guests is if you had to define success for yourself right now, how would you do that? And how has that definition changed for you throughout your life? I have to say it hasn't. My mom can tell you that I said the same thing when I was 20 as I'm saying now at 50, that when I, when I pass away, when I shuffle off this mortal coil, I only want two words being used to describe me, classy and helpful. Now, I swear like a sailor. Uh, I wear shirts way too low cut. I think, that the, I think the classy thing has probably sailed. But <laughs> my idea of success is class and service. And so if I can be helpful to people, then I will consider myself very successful. But I'd love it to also be thought of as classy. Classy is relative. And um, I think everything that you just described is why you're my kind of people. So um, I, um, I love that so much. And I'm interested to know whether you think that your upbringing in, I know that you mentioned you had, you come from an entrepreneurial family and an entrepreneurial mindset, whether that had something to do with the fact that you had thought about what success meant to you at such a young age? Um, truthfully, no. Um, I, I, I would say that my upbringing definitely had a lot to do with it, but I, you know, I did come from a wonderful family, but it was a troubled family. I came from a very troubled background. And I had not only I, but hu a huge swath of my family, an enormous percentage of my family has, um, has had to overcome either addiction issues or mental health issues, or, you know, we're, um, it's, we're the bruised fruit section, you know, we're, uh, what do they say? The, uh, the, uh, the odds are good, but the goods are odd. And uh, <laughs> we, we think we're hysterical. I mean, we love each other and we're, we're close and we're tight, but, but because I come from a family that is constantly having to evaluate how they're doing and what's going on, and, and we check in with each other, the idea of service was not something that was instilled in me from a young age. It was, it was an aftermarket add-on. It was kind of a bolt-on after I came out of the factory. And I love that that happened, but it was something I had to learn in my adulthood to not just go after and grab everything that I wanted but that there was more to life. And no, that was not always part of my family's backgrounds, but I'm really glad that it is part of my life now. You know, I love it. And I love that you described it as an aftermarket add-on because we get to decide what we're going to be and what our, what our personalities are going to be and our, our service to others is going to be and what's important to us and our values. And it doesn't have to stay the same our entire life. We get to Mr. Potato Head our life and figure out what's important and what's not important and change our pieces around. And, and I love that you described it as an aftermarket add-on. Well, to this day, I say that I always have to wait for the second thought. Whenever somebody offers me something, my first instinct is to grab what I can and, and to be selfish and to be, I mean, my first instinct is never the, the genuinely spiritual, healthy instinct. But if I wait for the second thought, it, it comes. And so I have had to learn to take a deep breath because my first instinct is never the classy service-based one. 
Well, when you are able to articulate how you found that filter, let me know because I still sometimes think that I don't wait long enough. So, <laughs> um, so I kind of find this as I as I've started this podcast and talked to people, um, the idea of success and fulfillment and how they relate has become super interesting to me. So I'm interested to know whether you think that success comes first, followed by fulfillment, or whether you find fulfillment first and then you feel successful. I have never connected the two before. I always saw them as two very different entities that you could feel deeply fulfilled. So I'm going to say, now that, because that's a great question, I've never connected those two concepts before. And I would say that being that my definition of success being what it is, that I don't have to feel fulfilled to be successful. I'm not a big fan of paying attention to how I feel. Uh, I'm more a fan of paying attention to what I do. There are days I do not feel fulfilled. There are days I there are days I don't even feel particularly friendly. There are days that I don't feel like doing any of the things that I do, but I do them anyway, and that is why I'm successful. So no, I, I'm 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 really I'm, I'm kind of like piecing it out as as you ask um, because I've never put those two concepts together. But no. I think success is separate from fulfillment. I don't think that feeling fulfilled has anything to do with my success. I don't think feeling anything does. It's whether or not I show up the next day and live up to my own, my own goals for myself and the things that I've set to try and have some integrity. Such an amazing answer. Such an amazing answer. Thank you for that. Um, and then uh, as far as writing and publishing. And, and we talked a little bit about this with music, but how do you constantly make sure that you're pushing yourself out of your comfort zone so that you don't get complacent with what you're trying to do with your life? I never go anywhere without a lifeguard keeping an eye on me in the deep end. I don't do any, me by myself is never a good idea. <laughs> so I have, I have friends I have cohorts, I have buddies, I have a husband, I've got a mom, I've got a sister, I've got a therapist, I've got groups of people who are happy to see me coming and groups of people who are not. And, um, and pushing myself out of my comfort zone is never my idea, but because I stay connected to a community, I often find that I am presented with opportunities to step outside my comfort zone. And so the way I constantly stretch myself is to stay in touch with, I have an accountability partner. Her name is Annalisa Parent. Um, guys, everyone should get to know Annalisa. She's with datewiththemuse.com. She and I get together every Monday for a couple hours and we sit on Zoom together and we do all that. We don't talk. We just stay on a video conference together and we do all the things that we didn't get done last week that we didn't want to. She, we, because there are things I don't want to do. I don't want to do my bookkeeping. I don't, I mean, I want to do the non, I am the queen of 80%. I love to do the first 80% of every project, but the last 20%, I hate. I step out of my comfort zone by other, by asking other people to make me do it. I love that. So I have an accountability partner and we do talk a lot, sometimes more than we should on um, every Sunday morning. And I love the idea of just having somebody there to say, okay, this is what I'm going to do. Like, I'm not going to talk to you, but for the next two hours, I'm going to do my bookkeeping and like forcing you not to get up and forcing you to do it. That's because she's a... looking at you. And if yeah. she sees me on my iPhone, she'll suddenly turn the mute off and she'll say, are you on Facebook? You know, <laughs> you know, cause 
because I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm, my brain is just this unruly puppy that just likes to run all over. Yeah. Yeah. I have squirrels running all over in my brain and, and I find them often. We should um, get my puppy and your squirrels together and see what happens. And yeah. I don't think that that's going to be beneficial for anybody, but I know some attorneys in everywhere in the country. So I think we're covered. <laughs> I'm sorry to make you spit out your water. That's good. <laughs> so moving into the end of this, um, I have loved this conversation and we talked so much about things that I think people are going to be able to take into the publishing world, but also just pull out nuggets to live the best life that they can. So before I let you go, um, I would love to do a quick random round and let people get to know you a little bit better. You okay with that? All right, shoot. All right. What profession other than your own, and we know it's not teaching, do you think would be fun to attempt? If this publishing thing ever goes south, I think an over-the-country, long-haul, 18-wheeler driver would be the perfect job for me. The idea that, because I love to drive, I love to be alone, I don't like talking to people, I'm, I'm a horrible human being. So the <laughs> idea of, of getting paid to be able to drive 12, 14 hours a day and listen to music and, oh my God, that, I would love that. That would be my favorite job. Love it. Um, if you could time travel, where would you go and why? Hmm. If I could time travel, I would go back to 1987 and I would tell Amy to just calm the hell down, just relax, that it's going to be fine. I, I would, if, if I could time travel, I would love to, to save myself all of the angst that I put myself through just worrying about stuff that never happened. Love it. Um, on that note, before we move on, there was a, a quote that was sent to me that I saw in my Facebook memories that I posted about five years ago that said, I have 99 problems and 86 of them are completely made up in my head for no logical reason. Yes. And that like, well, makes complete sense to me. Have you heard the Mark Twain thing? Mark Twain back in the 1800s said, I have lived through the most horrible times known to, in all of humankind. Some of them actually happened. Yes, it's so true. So true. All right. So what personality trait has been most helpful to you throughout your life? I have to say my sense of humor. If you can make people laugh, you can get them to kind of like you and to, to hire you. And I got to say my sense of humor, and I'm very grateful to my parents for that because I, don't, I can't take claim credit for it. But there's a small percentage of the human population that finds me funny. And I would say that that particular uh, characteristic has been the most helpful to me in terms of both personal and professionally. Love it. And let's go down the dark side of that. What, pers what personality trait has gotten you in the most trouble or you've had to watch out for? I would say my sense of humor. <laughs> Would also be the answer. I, I had a man call me a couple months ago and he had a lot of money. He was, gonna, he was gonna give me money to work with him. And we were talking about a cover design concept and, and we hadn't exactly signed the contract yet. And, and I was trying to explain to him what I meant. And so I said to him, do you like music? He said, well, I like Michael Buble. And I said, so no. <laughs> he got so offended and so mad because I was like, so you don't like music. I was joking. Okay. So my sense of humor gets me in trouble as well. I love it. I'm always interested when I ask that question, how many people are going to have the same personality trait for both? Um, because I would think that it's the same 
as well. Um, do you prefer, we kind of talked about this already, do you prefer reading books or listening to audiobooks? I have to read. I can't, I, I don't watch video. If I'm on Facebook and I see that a video, of, of like a TED talk is 20 minutes long, uh, no, I go find the transcript. I read so much faster than an audiobook could ever, even though you can speed them up now, I don't have that kind of time. I do not have 12 hours to absorb a book because I read so fast. I read three or four books a week. So I am 100% in the reading camp. Love it. And I'm going to throw a little curveball at you. What book um, have you gifted to people the most? When Things Fall Apart by Pima Chodron. Love it. I, we know you're a music fan. Do you have like a pump up song or, or music that you listen to when you need to get motivated? I do, but I don't want to say it in public. <laughs> you said that this tracks us forever, but I Need a Hero by Bonnie Tyler is my, <laughs> I'm sorry, but I'm a child of the 80s and, and there it is. And I love, and I'm sorry, but I Need a Hero by Bonnie Tyler will always be the song that gets my blood going. And stop laughing at me. I can see you. No, I'm trying. It's so hard, but it's okay. I just got a notification from my Spotify that Justin Bieber launched a new record today, and I'm trying to figure out why it thinks that I would be interested in that, which tells me there's something on my playlist that I don't want to admit either. So I, I share your, I share your embarrassment. It's okay. Once a year, I I will produce a concert for charity, and we call it Guilty Pleasures, and I bring all of Rochester together, and we each perform a song we're embarrassed to admit we like. <laughs> And last year I did Sister Christian. I love it. I love it. See, there, there is a listener out there for every music. There Michael is. Michael Buble included. Do you have a morning routine? And if so, can you give us a glimpse into it? I prefer total silence in the morning. And my husband, who I'm relatively newly wed, we've only been married for about a year and a half. He prefers to listen to podcasts and to political shows in the morning. So my morning routine is to get up a little before him get all cleaned up, slap on some makeup, and I go to my car. And my morning routine involves prayer and meditation and breakfast. And, and I, in the last five or six years since uh, Tim and I have gotten together, my morning routine, I do pray, I do meditate, I have breakfast, but I do it from my car. And I do everything in the front seat of my car because it's a quiet, safe space where I don't have to hear anyone's Political voice. I just, I like quiet in the morning. I need at least two hours of total silence before I can get on with my day. Oh my gosh. I love you so much right now. And I can just picture you in your car all by yourself. Loving doing your it. morning routine. Yeah. And, and completely happy. And, and somebody looking, going, what's wrong with her? And you're just in the best time of your day. It is. Yeah. Love it. All right. So if people want to find you and they should, because number one, you're hilarious. And number two, you have so much amazing information to give people. Where's the best place for them to track you down? Newshelves.com or amysadvice.com. Either one will take you to the same page, the same place. Newshelves.com or amysadvice.com. I would love to meet with you guys. Drop me an email from my website. Sign up for a free 15 minute consult. Do what you need to do. I would love to connect. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate you taking some time out of your busy schedule to hang out with us today and all of the insight and practical tips that you have given us into the publishing world and life in general. Oh, Amber, thank you. And we have to get you on my podcast next. Oh, I would love that. I would love that. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the show. I hope that something that was said resonated with you or provided value to you in one way or another. I'd love to hear more about your thoughts on the show. You can reach out to me on Facebook or Instagram at Amber Furman. 
Also, I've created a Facebook community for followers of the show to interact with me and other members of the community. You can find that on Facebook at More Than Corporate. So go ahead and join that group if you'd like to stay up to date on podcast happenings and meet some really cool people. Again, thanks so much for tuning in.